Last week, David led us through 1 Kings 18, and his question in this Game of Thrones series was, who is your God? And at Mount Carmel, there was this clash between Baal, the God of nature, and the God who, as David said, turned hearts. We can't live with a divided heart, and the question was, who's your God? Who are you going to choose? And on that mountain, people fell on their faces and worshipped, saying, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Climax at the end of chapter 18. And yet we come to chapter 19. Immediately after this, Elijah's work is in shreds and he runs away. He's weary and he's discouraged and he's a suicidal prophet. So today I'd like to think about chapter 19 as a safe place when life falls apart. James describes Elijah as a man just like us. Some people, commentators looking at these two chapters have said there's some kind of editing issue going on here. Uh, this amazing story of the overthrow of Baal and the astonishing repentance that people uh, followed seemed to be undone in a moment. And, and these two stories have been pushed together. But human experience says that is sometimes the way life works. We're not so consistent. People deeply love others and yet find themselves completely bored in conversations with them. We demonstrate epic resolve in a tragedy, but have difficulty getting up to exercise on a Monday morning. An experience tells a deep, deeper story. Here's a well-known principle. You may have come across this. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to a person who isn't. A wonderful truth but experience often tells a different story. And the author of that quote, Charles Spurgeon, was one of Britain's greatest Baptist preachers, so plagued by discouragement and depression and fatigue that he resigned 32 times in 39 years. A more recent preacher known for his emphasis on possibility thinking sat dejected at a building site pronounced the death sentence on his pet project. And his supporters said, you, you can't give up, the whole world is watching you. And his pathetic reply was, if only I could have a good old-fashioned heart attack and fail with dignity. But as has been said from this pulpit many a time, it comes back to our familiar phrase and the issue is the issue of the heart. I wonder are you disappointed? Maybe even disillusioned with the apparent failure of God's purposes in your life and you're wondering how does this fit? How does this follow what seems to have been so much promise, so much hope? 
As we think about the heart, I want to just mention one person who's written on this deeper story. And uh, Jonathan Pierre has written a book called Dynamic Heart in the Daily Life. And his book is about how we connect Christ to human experience. And he explores and examines the functions of the heart, the thinking, the feeling, and the choosing. Is the problem with our thinking, with our belief, something that we fail to understand about God. That was certainly Elijah's, part of Elijah's problem. Who is this God? How do I match what I've just seen to with what's happening in my life right now? Or maybe the problem is desire. We're often far more driven by desire than belief because we are what we feel. And feelings of sadness to happiness or anger to disappointment or panic to relief can drive our lives and shape our destiny. And constant decisions flow from our heart's intentions. Or is it a problem of the will, of our intentions and choices? People generally choose what they choose to be. Countless decisions flow from the intentions of our hearts. And in 1 Kings 19, we meet this weary, discouraged, suicidal prophet and see how God renews him in a way that's far deeper than what he simply knew in his head about God. So I'm going to read from the message version of 1 Kings 19. And as we do, let's stand together and hear God's word. Ahab reported to Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, including the massacre of the prophets. Jezebel immediately sent a messenger to Elijah with her threat. The gods will get you for this and I will get even with you. By this time tomorrow, you'll be as dead as any one of those prophets. When Elijah saw how things were, he ran for dear life to Beersheba, far south of Judah, he left his young servant there and went on into the desert for another day's journey. He came to a lone broom bush and collapsed in its shade, wanting in the worst way to be done with it all, to just die. Enough of this, God. Take my life. I'm ready to join my ancestors in the grave. Exhausted, he fell asleep under the lone broom bush. Suddenly, an angel shook him awake and said, get up and eat. He looked around and to his surprise, right by his head were a loaf of baked bread and some coals and a jug of water. He ate the meal and went back to sleep. The angel of God came back, shook him awake again and said, get up and eat some more. You've got a long journey ahead of you. He got up, ate and drank his fill and set out. Nourished by that meal, he walked 40 days and nights all the way to the mountain of God, to Horeb. When he got there, he crawled into a cave and went to sleep. When the word of God came, then the word of God came to him. So Elijah, what are you doing here? I've been working my heart out for the God of the angel armies, said Elijah. The people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, destroyed the places of worship and murdered your prophets. I'm the only one left. 
and now they're trying to kill me. Then he was told, go stand on the mountain at attention before God. God will pass by. A hurricane wind ripped through the mountains and shattered the rocks before God, but God was not to be found in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire, but God wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, a gentle and quiet whisper. When Elijah heard the quiet voice, he muffled his face with his great cloak, went to the mouth of the cave and stood there. A quiet voice asked, So Elijah, now tell me, what are you doing here? Elijah said it again, I've been working my heart out for the God, for God, the God of the angel armies, because the people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, destroyed your places of worship and murdered your prophets. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me. God said, go back the way you came through the desert to Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, make him king over Aram. Then anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, make him king over Israel. Finally anoint Elisha, son of Sapath from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as prophet. And we'll end our reading there. Do take your seats. And as you do, let's pray together. I'm going to use words that uh, Walter Brueggemann expresses. Healing, sovereign God. Overmatch our resistant ears with your transforming speech. Penetrate our jadedness and fatigue. Touch our yearnings by your words. Through your out loudness, draw us closer to you. We are ready to listen. Amen. If the question about Elijah is, what went wrong? Or maybe the question you're asking is, looking at my story, what has gone wrong? My hope is that we'll step into trust again today and discover a safe place even when life falls apart. So after the showdown on Mount Carmel, the battle of the gods, the power of the Lord comes on Elijah and he runs to Jezreel, the capital and the seat of Jezebel. Why? He's a marked man and yet he goes there in the power of the Lord because he's expecting that now either Ahab and Jezebel would repent or the people would rebel and cast them out because these people had seen the true God, including Ahab. And on the mountain, they said, God is the true God. But Jezebel's death threat unravels that revival before it even has time to start. And now what has happened? Absolutely nothing. This showdown has ended in nothing. All of that effort. Many translations say Elijah ran because of fear. There's good reason to go with the version that we read, which says he ran because he saw. His eyes were opened. He realized this situation is the way it is. He realized how things had gone. 
And he wanted to know what was going on and why this spectacular success ended in such dismal failure. And so he runs to the desert. And I'd like us to learn who God is as we see Elijah and the way in which God comes to him in a number of different ways. And the first way is that he comes to care for his deepest needs. Sometimes we only want the problem fixed in front of us. Like Jonah, his problem was with the plant that had been eaten by the worm. Or Elijah, he wanted to walk away from fickle people. He was done. He was spent. We've seen that kind of turmoil this week as our prime minister quits. My ministry is over, Elijah says. And not just my ministry. It's his whole life that no longer makes sense. Take my life. Strong words. Someone here might have thought of suicide. We're a large crowd. Even in this situation, Elijah doesn't think he's the right to take his own life, which is amazing. Even when he is in utter despair, he doesn't go ahead and use that sword that was wielded on the prophets of Baal. Neither does he want Jezebel to take it. He asks God to take it. So how does God care for Elijah? There are three things he does. The first is that he sends an angel. The angel appears to Elijah. He doesn't say, do not fear. Does he say, I bring you good news? Does he say, repent? No. Does he say, do you want to talk about it? The first thing the angel does is he cooks. He touches him. He reflects his feelings. He says, you're tired. Some people are immediately sure that if you're just depressed or, or despondent, it must be a spiritual problem right away. Many will say, you need to pray. We'll go down their trouble shooting list. Okay, Elijah. Okay, Gordon. Have you prayed in faith? Have you confessed all sin? Have you rebuked the devil? Have you claimed the promises? Have you thanked God? But Elijah has deeper needs. Sometimes we need a walk at the beach, a meal at a good restaurant, a lie-in, and God starts there. Elijah isn't only a physical person, he's a relational person. He needs touch, just touch, nearness. And God comes to this depressed man and gives him time and food and rest and says, it's okay. The journey is too much for you. And he asks a question. When God asks a question, it's never to get information. When he asked, Adam, where are you in Genesis 3? It was not that he didn't know where he was. It's never to give him information, but it is to give you information. And he asks the question twice. And for a long time, all God does is listen. What are you doing here? Elijah started by saying, I'm no better than my ancestors. And most of this passage is getting his thoughts 
It's listening to him. And listening to somebody who's got themselves into a tight corner is not easy. Elijah does make some mistakes. I, I've been very zealous. In other words, I, I've been making this happen. What happened to you? I've been doing all the running here. I've been waiting for you to come in and pick up where I've left off. There's nothing left but me. I'm on my own. These things take a long time to deal with because his deeper intentions are driving his efforts to escape. And he needs somebody there to listen. Some people are verbal processors. They talk out their thoughts. Some people are fixers. They like to fix problems, but everybody speaks out of their hearts, don't they? Jeremy Pierre uses the example of a guy who says to his ex-girlfriend, I, I didn't intend to hurt you. Of course, he didn't intend that. He just dumped her. All his words do so little to comfort her and a lot to frustrate her. What he's claiming is that his intentions were not to harm her. That may be true. But people's choices are deeper than that, aren't they? And the girl understands what the boy does not. His choices revealed his deeper intentions. So God asks, tell me what you're doing here. Maybe in the middle of this busy Sunday. God's nudging you with that question. Tell me what you're doing here. And eventually the third thing that God does is say, you need to listen to my word. Come into my presence. When we look at how some people treat depressed people, we see their worldview. Some just say, you need tablets. Get on to the medication. They reduce everything to mechanics. And for other people, they reduce everything to the spiritual level. You need to pray. You need to get into a Bible study. There's a lack of faith. They reduce everything to the spiritual and then there's some who reduce everything to the psychological. Just talk about it. You need to talk. You need to get this out. I can't judge you. I'll never tell you what, what's right or wrong. You just need to talk it out. It's all psychological. And when a world reduces everything to those levels, they're not going to deal with the real problems. When you try to deal with that, you're not dealing with the complexity of life as we know it. And the God of the Bible hasn't only invented us this way, he is also going to redeem us and redeem all of these things, body, soul, and spirit. Sometimes we're super spiritual, and at other times we're not spiritual enough. And if you look at what God does with Elijah here, instead of saying, this person needs a rest, we're often saying, you need to get into a Bible study, you need to spend more time praying. And yet, when you look at what God did, Give rest. When Elijah needed to get him back on his feet, he needed something far more spiritual as well than we give ourselves. God cares for our deepest needs. Do you believe that? 
But he also comes in glory and he's invited Elijah to come and see him. Why is he going to the mountain of God? Verse 8. It's more commonly known by another name, of course, Mount Sinai. When he gets there, he goes into a cave. And so centuries before Elijah got there, Moses went up on that mountain and said, I want to see your glory. He was despairing of the people that he was leading. I want to know who you are. And God said to Moses, get into the cleft of the rock and I will pass by. And now in almost the exact situation, he says to Elijah, come and meet me on the mountain of God. There's so many parallels here. We don't have time to go into it, but he says to Elijah, I will pass by. The thing you see in this chapter is all of the ways in which God shows up to see his glory. There's the angel of the Lord who's very near and tender. And then he gets to the mountain and there's wind and there's earthquake and there's fire. And some people take this beautiful reference. God was not in the wind or the fire to mean that God is never manifest in those ways. But they come from him. Some people make a principle out of silence. But there are lots of examples of God showing up in these ways to others. Moses at the burning bush and Abram in Genesis 15. What was God? He was fire. To Job, he was wind. To the apostles in Acts 2, he was a violent wind that shook the house. When he showed himself on Mount Sinai, what was there? Earthquake. And so seeing this entire range of the ways in which God has shown himself, in the end, this manifestation to Elijah was one of them. A gentle whisper. What does that mean? Elijah's problem was he was so zealous. He had the right plan. He executed it with total commitment. So something else went wrong. I'm the only one left. And he thought, if I do the right thing, God is bound to respond. He had God in a box in the sense that he wanted God to work the way he expected. He expected him to overthrow Ahab, Jezebel right away, either spiritually or having them removed. And now he's despondent because God has let him down and his plan has not succeeded, but it was his plan that let him down. He identified God with his plan. He's not a tame God. He may not act the way you expect, but he comes to us humbly on his own terms in surprising ways and reveals his plan. And Elijah expected the plan to be worked through Ahab and Jezebel. But God revealed his own strategy further on. It was through Haziel, Jehu, and Elisha. And we can put God in a box, saying there's so few of us left. There's only one way in which we can work our way through this. We fail to see what God is doing. There was no sign that Haziel 
this pagan king ever trusted God and God uses people that we don't expect. He's bigger than we think. Elizabeth Elliot, <coughs> author of Three Gates of Splendor, said this, God is God, and because he's God, he's worthy of my trust and obedience. I will find rest nowhere but in his holy will that is unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he's up to. One of the reasons we get discouraged is we so often get carried away with our successes and then too crushed by our failures. And this is a reason why we need each other, why we need community. Moses, on the same spot, said, show me yourself. And he gets the fire. Elijah, the same place, gets the whisper. Mary comes to Jesus and said, if only you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Martha comes with the same question, if only you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Mary gets tears. Martha gets a lecture. I am the resurrection and the life. What's going on? Different hearts need different things. And from the richness of God's glory, we see him working in different ways. And as a community of people, we need one another to see God working in our lives, those who are strong, those who are weak. If we're not prepared to have deeper relationships with other Christians, we're going to miss out on seeing a full picture of who God is. As Joel said last week, we need to see his kingdom advance as ordinary people experience God's word unleashed in their lives. So a summary of the way in which God cares for Elijah. He cares for our deepest needs. He comes in all his glory and he changes us with a word of his grace. What does this small, still small voice mean? Elijah heard God not in the earthquake or the wind or the fire, but in a word of grace. And Tim Keller puts it this way. You see that Elijah didn't go out in verse 11 when the wind and the earthquake and the fire strike. And so he's not touched by any of them. It's the rock that's torn up. He's shielded by the rock and it can't get through. And finally comes the word in this thin whisper. And I think we can understand something of what this says. Elijah, don't look at the spectacular. You thought Carmel was going to change hearts. It didn't. Any more than the earthquake, wind, and fire changed you. It didn't get to you. What will penetrate and change people's hearts? My voice. My word. If you want to know God and have your life changed, instead of looking for mystical experiences, go to his word and read it. It is the voice of God. Go to it. Don't just dissect it, although that's okay as well. But get to the point of saying, this is the word of God. Speak to me. And nothing will change your life like hearing the voice of God through Scripture. 
Why is it that Elijah was not smitten by the earthquake, wind, and fire? What are they? They're tokens of judgment, aren't they? It was the rock that took the impact. Centuries later, God brought Elijah and Moses back from heaven for a special event on the Mount of Transfiguration. They appeared and saw Jesus in his glory and spoke to him of his death and they saw the rock in which they had been hidden so they could have a relationship with God. And Jesus got the earthquake. When he died, there was an earthquake and the graves were open. Because he was shaken by the judgment of God, it came on him. He was torn to pieces so that we could be made whole. John the Baptist didn't see it, didn't understand why this gentle Savior had come. And he said, should we be looking for someone else? And Jesus said, I didn't come to bring the judgment of God. I came to bear God's judgment so that we can have a personal relationship with God. We're almost done. We prayed, touch our yearnings by your words. We're ready to listen.